you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Welcome to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Hello, Sam. How are you doing? Hey, Avery. So nice to see you. You're looking amazing in all white for anyone who can't see. Avery is wearing the most fierce all white power suit right now. I feel very humble. Well, it's actually slightly contrasted. There's linen and there's a tan and a white. Um, but thank you for noticing, Sam. I appreciate <laughs> it. And it is always such a pleasure to be here with you. I'm pumped for today's episode. Today's episode is going to be incredible. Not only do we have some great stories to talk about, but our guest, Kira Byrne. Kira is the Vice President of New Business Innovation at Condé Nast. Condé has done a surprisingly large amount of projects in Web3. For what is, I mean, you know, like a hundred something year old publisher, they have embraced it through Vogue and as well with GQ and with Wired. They really dove into Web3 in a lot of different experimentation. Kira runs that group. And I'm super excited to talk with her. Yeah, they've done a lot of really, really cool stuff. So excited to jump into all of that. First, let's chat about what is happening this week in the world of Web3. Sam, you're constantly finger on the pulsing pulse. What are you seeing this week? Well, Avery, I know you were away on vacation, which you sorely needed. But last week was NFT NYC. So you're probably trying to consume from afar. But I can tell you what it was in the trenches. NFT NYC this past week was very interesting because one, it reinforced just like how strong vibe culture is. Like there were so many good people in town and just running into all of them and getting to meet builders alongside with developers, alongside with artists and collectors. And everyone was like, you know, seemed to be in like a really good communal happy space together. I mean, the fact that, you know, I was at one event that like Beeple was just hanging out with everybody and, you know, and just being Beeple. And then he also brought these creepy like rubber masks of Mark Zuckerberg and Elon and Kim Jong-il with him. Or is it Kim Jong-un, whoever's in power now and filming a lot of content around it. It was really fascinating. Now, I will say, and I know both you and I are also involved in the event business. But I did hear that the conference itself was a little bit lacking in terms of attendance. It also was way out on the west side in the Javits Center, which is a very expensive building. The car show was going on, so that was taking a lot of attention away from it. But I kind of feel like we need a 
more proper cultural event. This one had 1,300 speakers. So I think once you get that many in, and again, not saying that consensus and VCon don't curate a little bit better, but I do think that it's hard to be successful when everyone who wants to speak can. So that was just one of my takeaways, which is I kind of wish it was a little bit more curated. Outside the event was amazing, though. Yeah, I mean, from what I saw from afar, afar meaning what I saw from Twitter, (laughs) there's still this really passionate sub-community of people who really love NFTs who are really building in this space. And I think that NFT NYC, unlike Consensus or Avicon, it's very narrowly focused on the NFT community. It's not about crypto. It's not about broader Web3. It's not about future of innovation. It's not about marketing or entertainment. It's about NFTs. And that is exactly what it is. And I think they've always been very inclusive with the speaker list by design. Again, I do actually think that's differentiated. Anyone who wants to speak kind of can, and that means you have 1,300 speakers, and some sessions are very highly attended and some not so much, which I think I also saw from Twitter from some pictures. That's always been their MO, and I actually kind of respect that they're like sticking with that versus trying to, you know, redefine who they are because they've been doing the conference for like at least five years, maybe more. So interesting to hear that take. The big thing, and I would almost call this a push, the push I had to my team, and the reason we didn't do any like major activations there is like, are there new people coming in or is this just the same group of super fans who go to these conferences all the time? And it seems like it's the same group of super fans who are kind of like, you know, powering through the bear market together was the vibe that I was getting. And I saw some very successful activations for small, you know, kind of meetups for NFT projects, whether that's D-Gods or Adidas or GQ, they did meetups and like those were popular, but, you know, small, but like strong community impact style events seem to be resonating. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about, look, everyone likes to come to New York. So whether you live in New York or you're a visitor, it's not a hard place to get people to come to. And I do think the amount of people that I was like, I follow you on Twitter, and then I was able to see them in person. I'm forgetting his name. For example, your head of strategy over at Vayner. Chris. Chris, Yes. I didn't get a selfie. (laughs) Spent a lot of time with Chris. And I was like, I was so happy just to be able to like hang and be like, this is the person who I've like read your things. And so that stuff is really what is so special about just the live crypto events because it lives so much on Twitter. So true. I was really happy about that. And honestly had a good week. I will say by day four, I was drained and I started to decline a lot more. But day one, two and three was pretty special. I love that. And it's amazing to see that like this community is not dying the bonds are strong, which is pretty cool. Absolutely. So we're mentioning crypto Twitter a lot, but Avery, there is a buzz happening about something called Blue Sky. So one, are you on Blue Sky? And two, is this the kind of social media decentralized network that we've been waiting for? There is a huge buzz around Blue Sky. Very embarrassingly, I'm not on it yet. That is on my to-do list in the next few days. I got on Farcaster really early, and honestly, I never really invested the time to get good at Farcaster. I think like any platform, you have to like really get your hands on it. Like think about it. How do you communicate? What's your style on each platform? And I feel that I have my hands like kind of full with Twitter and LinkedIn, which are my two primary platforms and a little Instagram. So adding one more does seem like a challenge, but I think there's a real consumer demand for a new social platform, particularly in the wake of everything that's happening with Twitter at the moment. So I think they're doing a good job kind of capitalizing on that insight to launch something. And I like the way it's rolling out. So I plan to get on it. Are you on Blue Sky, Sam? Where can people follow you? SamUin.BlueSky.Social. Feel free to jump in. But yeah, I mean, I joined three days ago, so I don't want to say I'm an expert. I do think it has some really early vibes that feel like early Clubhouse. They feel even like 
Twitter 2012, there is something that sort of like we all found something. And I think to your point, like Mastodon is very confusing for me. Farcaster, I tried for a minute, but it didn't really seem to like stick with me. This one, I'm seeing more people I know on it. And maybe that's really the key to a social network. And then as we all know, everyone loves an invite, right? So I don't know because I haven't gotten my invites yet, but I think it's like you get 40 initial ones that you can give out to your friends, which creates this network effect. And people are like thirsty right now for these invites. They're asking everywhere they can for them. People post them and then they get snapped up in two seconds. So it also gives you social cred because like you get to invite your friend in and they get to ask you for it. So the other thing which I think has been interesting is a lot of folks talking about when they open their feed, the first thing you're seeing is just a lot of amazing art. So there are a lot of crypto artists who got in early into Blue Sky. And so the fees are very visual in that respect. And I think that's something that also feels really nice. And, you know, it is a Jack Dorsey project. You know, does it take someone who built Twitter to try to create the competitor to Twitter? We also know Dorsey is a big, big Bitcoin maxi. So he loves the idea of, you know, decentralization being at the core of this project. So I'm, I'm just excited to see what happens with it. And I also wonder if we will see a different kind of wave of how influencers work, because Twitter has so many folks who kind of became these influencers often without sort of knowing that much. Not that I'm showing my hand too much, <laughs> but, you know, I'm hoping Blue Sky maybe like has a little bit more of a democratized, you know, user base. Our eyes are on Blue Sky and you definitely need to give me one of your invites that 40 is going to 39 real quick. <laughs> I reserve um, one for you. Amazing. Finally, you and me and when we're just talking before we logged on, you happen to get an Hour Force One poster from Nike. Tell us what that is and why you're excited about it. I think I've shared this on our podcast before. But I think that Nike's, you know, Web3 strategy and the multidimensional approach they're taking to bringing their brand into the next era of the internet is so best in class through the acquisition of Artifact, through what they've built with their sneakers app, which has been tremendously successful for many, many years, to what they're doing with Dot Swoosh, to what they're doing with Nike Land and Roblox. Like, it's just so spot on. And Dot Swoosh is, I believe most of our listeners would know, Nike's sort of like in-house Web3 brand. I think you could say it's a loyalty play, but you can also say it's sort of a digital community that empowered users to first claim your own dot swoosh handle. You know, mine is like, I think, Avery dot swoosh or something like that. And that was the first phase of the project. They did a bunch of events, read a bunch of the comments, and it seems like they heard a lot of feedback from users on what worked and what didn't about that. But this new Air Force One poster drop is the first airdrop that will be part of the dot swoosh program. They've done many airdrops for what they've built with Artifact. And you and me were lucky enough to actually receive this poster, which unlocks access to their drop. So I'm super excited about it. It's a fun way to show a collectible. It's a fun way that's very in the spirit of Web3, which I think is interesting. They like leaned into that like airdrop language, which we've seen be very popular in the NFT community. We haven't seen like adopted much by brands who are trying to appeal to a broader audience. So I love it. I'm pumped about my poster. I need to figure out like how I can access it because it wasn't working when I tried to, but they gave me an email and that means I have it. So everyone who signs up for a dot swoosh address right now, there's close to 400,000 people who have done that. So there's already 400,000 new people on chain that are part of a Nike ecosystem that all lives. Secondly, is if you have the poster, you get a guaranteed spot to buy one of their drop boxes, right? And the two boxes they have, one is you can choose classic remix, which is like based on styles from 1982 to 2006, or you can go for the new wave, which is the 2007 beyond into the futuristic stuff, like with Artifact. 
And so you basically get one of these and then you get a random, you know, I think there's about 150,000 different unique sneakers that are going to come out. What's really interesting, got a little alpha last night, which is like the most grail piece in it is like an early 80s, all white, really boring Air Force One. Reminds me of when Bobby Hundreds dropped the atom bombs and like the best one was just the most simple bomb that existed in terms of rarity. The rarest one here is the all white Air Force One with nothing on it that anyone can go to a store and buy today. So I sort of also love that from a heritage perspective. All the collectibles are going to be $19.82 because they started in 1982. So I also love that. And it's their first digital collectible in the space. So it's going to be really exciting. I believe, don't quote me, but May 10th is when you'll be able to buy it. So don't try to buy anything now. You don't need to. But your poster does guarantee a spot. So if you got a poster, about a third of the people who have dot swoosh names got one. They get guaranteed spots and then everyone else has to compete in the marketplace. It'll be super exciting to hear how this goes. With that said, we have an amazing guest waiting for us after the break. Kira Byrne, Vice President of New Business Innovation for Condé Nast, will be joining us. So we'll see you in a minute. Web3 offers budding opportunities for brands to create more value for their customers, engage fans, and build immersive community. But that doesn't come without its risks. Chainalysis helps Fortune 500 brands better understand and manage the risks in Web3 through proactive assessments, on-chain monitoring, investigations, training, and more, so that they can focus on building a roadmap for long-term growth. Learn more about how Chainalysis can help your company grow in Web3 at chainalysis.com slash genc. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. We are here with Kira Byrne. Kira is the Vice President of New Business Innovation at Condé Nast. Super excited to talk to you today. Kira, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Amazing. I thought we could start off with just having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your both role at Condé and your career, and then specifically what got you interested in exploring sort of the Web3 ecosystem. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, I'm the Vice President of New Business Innovation at Condé Nast where I've been for close to eight years now, and I've held a variety of different roles within the company. For your listeners, maybe who might not be so familiar with Condé Nast, it is the home of over 20 brands, including Vogue, GQ, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, Wired, to name a few, and has teams spread in over 32 countries around the world. So in total, it's got a footprint of about 1 billion consumers. So I joined Condé from Google, where I'd worked across the business and then in the last few years in a tiny team that became essentially DoubleClick. So I joined Condé Nast to launch a publication called Ars Technica outside of the US. So Ars is a digital only proposition for a technologist, but has the most beautiful way of explaining incredibly sophisticated topics so that even I can understand something like quantum physics. I then joined the management team for Condé Nast International, where I worked for the president to manage the international markets, which was absolutely fascinating. And for the past four years, I've been running an incubator of sorts. We have been primarily focused on building new businesses away from advertising models for Condé Nast globally. 
So we use a design thinking method, which is very much focused on putting the user into the center of your product development and iterating your idea to create prototypes that you can very quickly get into customers' hands and to improve. So as a part of this incubator, we've launched or developed a variety of businesses across B2B and B2C across our many brands as well. And then in terms of like what got me interested in Web3, the first business I actually launched within this incubator is called Vogue Business. So that was four years ago. And when we developed this business, we saw that there was a white space around fashion and technology and innovation. That kind of intersection was not being well met. So this was one of the three pillars of that particular product when we launched. We brought on the very brilliant and talented Megan McDowell, who has been covering this intersection and what essentially actually became known as Web3. So through Megan's reporting, really, I've been able to follow the development of Web3 and being immersed in the world of, you know, digital fashion and tokenization and metaverse essentially since. And then on a personal level, actually, my husband got really into NFTs when I was on maternity leave and he was driving me nuts, really, showing me JPEGs of the punks. And I didn't really totally understand it, you know, after having four hours sleep at that time. But it really got me hooked, actually. And then I started to really get involved from a personal perspective into the space. That's fascinating. I'm not going to ask you about your JPEG collection, but I'm sure it's deep. (laughs) So, Kira, I'm really fascinated in the concept of tokenized media. I know we both know Keith Grossman, who was at Time for a long time and really helped to drive that. We had Coindesk been playing in this, but then also GQ, Vogue, you have a bunch of properties as well that are playing in the space in different ways. I'm just interested, you know, various media groups are sort of dabbling in Web3. Do you think that there's something that specifically intrigues media publications to explore the vertical? Well, I can only speak from my view, but as Condon asked, I think the thing that is so enticing about Web3 is the element of, you know, storytelling. You know, we've always striven to be leaders in storytelling and creativity. And this is what makes, you know, Web3 so compelling for us. It's another way that we can lead and inspire a new generation of designers and creators, regardless of the technology behind it. So immersive storytelling is probably what's the most exciting about this space for media companies. You know, the more consumers have an opportunity to interact with the content, be that through an immersive way or through communities, the more that it becomes their own. But, you know, we know there's a long way to go in terms of immersive experiences, platforms, and dare I say metaverse. But I think it is that element of immersive storytelling is so compelling. I would love to hear what you mean when you say immersive storytelling. Where do you think we are on that journey? Obviously, Condé Nast and a lot of your publications have existed for decades, if not centuries. How do you think storytelling has evolved? And what do you think the future of immersive storytelling might be for iconic brands like yours? That's a great question. You know, immersive storytelling and metaverse so far have gone so hand in hand. And I think it's all still a bit of a conundrum in terms of even defining what this is going to be. The way I look at it is, you know, it's immersive storytelling, more immersive digital experiences where we will be choosing to spend more of our digital time and we'll be able to express ourselves and connect with others. So the brands that can really connect in an immersive way to people in this space, they're going to be the ones that are going to be successful in the future. But I think without having the real platform experiences to be able to bring those stories to life, you know, I think once we see the glasses starting rolling out from whatever company that's going to be from, I think we're going to see the most incredible augmented reality storytelling. And we're already seeing that a little bit through mobile devices, but the mobile device is such a blocker in terms of the experience. 
So I think once we actually get more consumer products that allow for these experiences, that's when immersive storytelling is really going to take off. But it's those that are trialing it now and experimenting now are going to be the ones that are ready to really bring their teams and their storytelling into the next generation. I love that. And also, Sam, and many of our Gen Z listeners are familiar with my definition of Web3, which is an internet that's immersive, personalized, and ownable. So I love it. Have you considered doing anything in metaverse experiences yet? Have you all dabbled in anything like that publicly? Yeah, yeah, we have. We've run, like last year, four different metaverse experiences, two for Vogue Business. As I mentioned, Vogue Business was one of the first businesses that came out of our team and has really been championing that intersection between fashion and technology. You know, very much there is a focus on Web3 on digital fashion, token strategies, metaverse activations, etc. And last year, Vogue Business ran two metaverse experiences. Most recently, the Metaverse Atelier that was sponsored by Epic Games. The way we see it is a major tenant of journalism is to show, not to tell. So these two metaverse experiences were educational and they were entertaining and they illustrated the virtual world. And that virtual world and digital fashion don't have to look childlike or cartoony. So within this, we curated a collection of the most important digital fashion pieces, displayed 3D fashion, some that had never been displayed before. And we had the designers narrating their work in this kind of audio shower that automatically played when you entered the space. So when our members came, they were educated, but in the most beautiful and immersive way. And the average time spent in those were 21 minutes in the Metaverse Atelier. So if you think of that just, you know, in comparison to like a long form story, it's quite substantial. So we had those two with Vogue Business and actually with Vogue, we experimented last year with a rather large metaverse experience, let's say. It's called the Meta Ocean. So it was inspired by the Vogue Global September issue, which was themed Fashion's New World. We created a home to a variety of multimedia digital projects. So designed to continue this narrative of Fashion's New World and particularly around ocean conservation. So we lent into what Vogue's strength is and what it has done for, for decades, which is, you know, identifying and celebrating creators and creativity globally. So we collaborated with seven Vogue teams around the world to create a digital showcase of 24 artists' work across disciplines. So, you know, celebrating art and fashion and music all suspended in this kind of water creation, but at the same time as highlighting this really important mission of ocean conservation. So we have been experimenting with immersive storytelling, some having elements of social interaction, some not, and just really understanding what our audiences are looking for from us. So Kira, you mentioned, you know, at some point we probably have some sort of augmented glasses. You've mentioned what you did with Epic, which is like more game engine environment design and kind of immersive design there. I think you guys have also been dabbling with Discord in the past. What's your definition of the metaverse and what should we expect as consumers? I think Avery's description is great. The way I've always been talking about it is just it's a more immersive digital experience where we are going to express ourselves and connect to each other socially. I kind of step away from the technologies and just go more to the human element of, you know, average time spent digitally is like six hours and 57 minutes daily. And if you believe that that's going to increase, which I do, then it follows that there's a human, you know, want or behavior to create a sense of identity in this new version of reality for yourself. So I think understanding, you know, how we're going to express ourselves, how we want to express ourselves. Is it as we are today or is it like a giant pink elephant? I don't know. 
So I think just looking at the human behaviors and understanding those, then it makes it a lot easier, I think, certainly for our teams to understand as opposed to thinking platform first. When we look at those immersive experiences, and then I also went deep on the Photo Vogue collection, which is more a photography collection that you did, which has some beautiful work in it. What are the takeaways from the experiments you've done? We've obviously had the metaverse executions, and we've also been experimenting with digital art, digital collectibles, token strategies. You mentioned Photo Vogue. I am just the biggest fan of Alessia Glaviana. She's one of the most dynamic thinkers. And they did a partnership with Voices, which was really about educating. It was like a residency program, teaching participants about Web3 and how to be successful in NFTs, but with this incredible like mission of really bringing a selection of artists from different cultural backgrounds, some of whom are living through like really difficult times in you know the midst of war zones, for example. They just launched the theme for their Photo Vogue Festival in Milan in October of this year, I believe. It's going to be on what makes us human and what makes us human images in the age of AI, which I think is going to be absolutely fascinating. And then again, on the token and digital collectibles, obviously, we did the GQ launch with four artists, which is very much a digital collectible first, but an entry into a relationship with GQ. We've never launched a membership for GQ, so it was the first of its kind. We actually just had an event last week during NFT NYC for the holders. And again, GQ don't hold consumer events. They hold the most incredible industry events. So it's really fun to open up the brands into membership and events for the holders in a completely different way. So I guess in terms of what we've learned, you know, I think shockingly enough, the thing we have learned that I don't think anybody will have guessed is really how important community is. (laughs) Like everybody talks about this. So it isn't new, but when you are You're focusing on what you as a brand are bringing to the space and how you're going to be additive. That's so key in terms of understanding the audience or the community you're going to serve. With Web3, there's an expectation of a more intimate relationship with the brand that that community is dedicating itself to. People expect more from the brands they engage with, expect more immediate and more transparent communications and a more personal like connection. This isn't limited to Web3. I think, you know, within fashion, we've seen the growth of the influencers and their connections to their communities, but it is becoming solidified as a key success for Web3. So I think, you know, really asking yourself, do you have a community or do you have an audience? And being really honest with yourself on that, because I hear a lot of people talking about their communities, but the reality is they have actually an audience and sometimes a passive audience that you really have to then understand how to make that into an engaged community. I love those insights and you've done so much work in this space. And, you know, I want to commend you for being really thoughtful. I know you've spoken to so many different folks in the industry, collectors, creators, thought leaders, agencies, partners, vendors. So you've like really rounded out a very solid understanding of what's out there today and picked the right big bets for your brands. What are the things that you learned as part of the GQ drop? Like what went really well or anything that you learned that you might sort of change if we were reapproaching? So I think what went really well was a few things. Firstly, this wasn't a marketing or an innovation team that launched this. This was the GQ team and our team were there to really help shepherd them and find the right partners and help on the execution. But it came from the GQ brand. And that's like one of the most important things, like making sure that the folks that are the creative leaders or the thought leaders of your brand are involved in your Web3 strategy because it is just an extension of your brand. You know, I think when the advent of social media came, you saw a lot of brands creating these social teams that were quite external to their core teams. 
And you ended up with this, you know, a very disjointed message out to your audience, a very different, you know, brand tone of voice on social than it would be on, let's say, a website. So I think ensuring firstly that the core team are involved in this. And we had, you know, Will Welsh, the global editorial director, super excited about this. He continues to be the creative director for GQ and a bunch of the GQ editorial team that are just so talented. So they were really engaged. And I think that was the first thing, you know, they were really focused on what is it to be GQ and Web3? You know, what are we going to be additive with? And what are the core values of GQ and how can we translate them and evolve them in Web3? So I think, you know, the very fact that the team were so engaged, I think the general relationships with the artists were wonderful. We brought on four brilliant artists, two men, two women, who have a variety of experiences within Web3, like one, um, Kelsey, has been illustrating for GQ and she actually hand drew all of her traits that went into the Gen AI for the NFTs. So you had a real mix of artists and the relationship between the artist and the creative director, Rob Vargas, was just really symbiotic. And I think something that I heard from them was they were surprised that a team like GQ or a brand like GQ would give them so much creative license that's really important as well. You know, if you're going to bring on creators to work with you, we gave them a theme and a prompt of which is change is good and let them really interpret that. And I think that is really important as well. So trusting the partners that you bring in and, and really allowing the creative process, because the aesthetic in Web 3 is going to be a little bit different than Web 2 naturally. So you have to trust the artists as well to bring their own aesthetic. I think the community aspect as well, you know, we built a Discord we had this community of OGs very early on, and we were constantly asking them, you know, as I mentioned at the start, our team develops new products using design thinking. And the very core of that is to put your prospective users or your audiences or communities at the center of your product build. So all the time from very early days, we were asking people like, what is it that really entices you by Web3? What do you want to see from GQ so we could understand what they would value most? So bringing the community into our development from a really early stage was just so, so helpful. In terms of hindsight, looking back, what would I change? We launched just a week after Silvergate. So there was definitely a feeling of uncertainty in the market at that time. I don't know if we could have done much to change how we would have approached the drop, really. In all honesty, hindsight 2020, I think... We did the best that we could. And as you said, Avery, we've taken on a lot of advice from people within the space to really understand. And we've been really lucky with the friends and advisors. One thing I always say to people that ask me about Web3 and, you know, moving into it, I'm like, stay away from the people that call themselves experts in Web3. A hundred percent. Yeah, run a million miles because they're usually the people that know nothing. And actually, there's one person in particular I'm thinking of who's well-known in space. And I remember I spoke with him early on and he says, you know, I don't think I can help you. And I was like, that's exactly why I want you to help me. It's very like a Socratic view. Um, so it's like the person who says they're experts, stay away. But I think, you know, generally taking guidance from people will help you avoid making any significant mistakes. I think that's great advice right there. You mentioned community and media brands are built out of audiences, right? And we all have audience segmentation in the media world. And when I think of the overlaps of the type of publications that you have and their types of audiences, because you have like people who collect objects or experiences, think Architectural Digest or Condé Nast Traveler. You have people who are focused on fashion and the future of fashion with like Vogue and Teen Vogue, storytelling of the New Yorker, innovation. You mentioned Ars Technica, which I'm a big fan of, as well as Wired. 
And then all the culture and entertainment, Vanity 4, Pitchfork, all of that stuff, like each of those are defined audiences. All of those audiences to some degree overlap in some respect with things like gaming and the metaverse and the creator economy and collecting and drop culture and all of that. Are you guys seeing that those audiences that are participating in subscribing and reading and involved with your publications are also intrigued on the sort of digital asset side, or is that still a hill you're climbing up? I do think it depends on the brand, but we have been, you know, listening to our audiences and our communities over the last year or two to really understand their views towards Web3, Metaverse, NFTs. I think like many legacy brands, there is an interest, but the question is how many people actually participate? You know, it is still quite a daunting space for people. You know, the idea of holding your own wallet key and seed phrase and the technical know-how that's still needed. It's quite steep, isn't it? I think there is more education needed, but I don't think it's just education. That's going to be the thing that's going to bring the thing that everybody keeps talking about, like massive, mass adoption. It's going to be more companies that are coming into solving the consumer needs, really helping to navigate the current technical challenges that consumers face to help onboard people in a smoother way that kind of hides the complexities of the blockchain, actually hides the technology. And I think there's companies like, you know, we've been partnering with like MoonPay and TokenProof that have been doing a good job at that. So I think there is certainly an interest, but I think, you know yourself, like when I'm talking to my family or friends, most people aren't engaging. They're curious and they're interested, but most people wouldn't be engaging in this space necessarily because of the technical challenges. But I think in terms of being like, you know, an introduction to the space, many of our brands have spoken about being that bridge. You know, Condé Nast is always, our brands have always been a reflection of the culture or setting the cultural conversation. So I think explaining why this is important as part of a larger cultural moment is really important. And I think, you know, Ars Technica, Wired, GQ, Vogue are all having that conversation with their particular audiences based on their audience interests and their level of education in the space. I want to overlay something we heard last week. Avery and I spoke to Ian Rogers from Ledger, who was on our podcast. It was a wonderful episode. And he seemed to make the case, which I thought about a lot after our conversation, that the valuable things in your life are worth protecting. And I think when you think of, you know, someone who maybe an architectural Titus reader who might have a $3 million vacation home or someone who reads Vogue and has a $6,000 Balenciaga bag, they also are thinking about how to protect those assets, right? They're taking the care, whether it's with a security system, whether it's making sure you're just not leaving it around when you're out in the club, right? Like thinking through how one protects assets, is it just an education and a behavior? I mean, yes, there's a technological layer that comes with the blockchain. But I just started to think like maybe we actually need to train people to value their assets a little bit more and that it's worth putting the extra effort in, in a society that seems to crave simplicity. Should we actually be training people to put more value into their assets, both physical and digital, and their identities in the future? I guess what you're asking them is to value their digital assets more. But the reality is there hasn't been an element of ownership on the internet, as we all know. Ownership up until now was a domain. So I think that when more consumers, more communities, more audiences come onto the blockchain and start to value digital assets, then that is going to be absolutely huge. And I think that's one thing for me personally that excites me the most about this is like the greatest movements in human history has been related to ownership. You know, the biggest economic movements have been related to land ownership and titles of land that allowed people to create incredible wealth through ownership and through rent and bar, et cetera. 
And that was such a turning point for humanity. And something like the smart contract is so deceptively simple. They will allow for ownership. But the reality is that most people don't understand the value of digital ownership and digital assets yet. We do education sessions every month in Condé Nast where we bring folks within the space in to talk about the space. So we've had, you know, G Money, for example, or Keith Grossman come in. And one of the comparisons I've done in the past is comparing a luxury handbag to a board ape. And I'm actually saying that these two assets have all of the same value points of scarcity, you know, proof of ownership, increase in terms of long-term investment. But the reality is most people just don't see those two things aligned. So I completely agree with you, but you can't push consumers into that. They will come to that realization once the value is proven more so on the blockchain. I love that take. I think that's so spot on. And I love, you know, that you're hosting these educational sessions for your organization, because I actually think one of the sort of undercommunicated benefits of having an innovation practice is making your employer like a place that cool, interesting people want to work and continuing to engage them and broaden their skill sets. It's a thing that, you know, very big companies exists and it takes time and effort and learning and development resources to build these things. But it can also be done in a really scrappy way that you know, makes people really proud to be a Condé employee and proud that they're getting to be at the cutting edge of a lot of the really cool stuff they're doing, even if they're not necessarily working on, you know, the GQ drop, they can know the details of how it all happens. I think that's a huge takeaway for brand leaders and, you know, marketers who want to continue to keep their teams like up on what's fresh, even if they're not necessarily ready to jump in themselves. Yeah, it's a great way as well, Avery, of finding the people around the business that are just passionate. Passion goes so far. And if you can find the people that are passionate and optimistic that this is an interest area for them and tap into that, you have these treasure troves of brains around the company. And, you know, innovation needs optimism. It needs positivity. So if you have those people, like there's one woman who works in the social team in Italy who has just the most fascinating ideas around AI and tokenomics, you know. So I'd be tapping into her. We might not be able to execute that, but just having her brain involved in this. And that goes for people across the business. Similarly, in like Taiwan, we have some great folks there. So we're tapping into that who find us through these education sessions. I love that, you know, because I work with so many companies who have now a little Web3 team, whether it's a task force or something that's actually their full-time job. A lot of times these people find these roles through being passionate at things like company-wide education sessions and, you know, building relationships with folks who are building in the space internally. So I think it's a great takeaway. What's your advice for brands and publishers who might be thinking about getting into this space? As you just mentioned, they might be having a mixed variety of sort of like inputs, both from sort of mainstream media, their friends and family, but they might be curious. What's your sort of guidance for those people who are in the consideration set? I think it is similar to what I mentioned earlier. You know, it's you need to build your Web3 strategy from the ground up. There's no one who can help you. And that's weirdly liberating. You know, when you start to speak to people and you realize that, you know, this person doesn't understand the values and the mission and the heritage and the context of my particular brand, then you realize that it's really on you. And that is quite liberating. And starting to build your Web3 strategy from the ground up, like what are your values? What do you want to be in the future? How do you want to service your audience and your community? Not creating this kind of separate entity. You know, back to the point of social media being separated and isolated. That's the last thing that you want to be doing. You don't want that disjointed experience. So, yeah, just ensuring that your creative teams and those that are working on the brand are really involved and just having lots of conversations with people that are deeply entrenched in the space. 
Kira, you also mentioned earlier that you were for a while when you were with Google on the DoubleClick team. We've mentioned Keith Grossman a couple of times. He's spoken about the fact that Time Magazine, I think in its first year, made $10 million in revenue off the NFT sales that it did in partnership with its artists. As we know, publishers often struggle for revenue, and it's a hard business, especially in your world in the print magazine game. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, whether it's tokenized advertising, whether it's NFTs, whether it's the subscriptions the way GQ did it. How should publishers think of these in terms of are they revenue ads or are they ways to really build community or is it both in your mind? Yeah, I think that everybody was looking at Time as an example of a media company that did it very well. But the reality was that that model suited Time and it suited Keith and it suited Maya and it suited their personalities. Like the community was very much an extension of who they are. And that model wouldn't work for GQ, for example. Like it suited, it was ground up by Keith, by that team, including Maya. So I think going into any innovation, any experimentation with a huge revenue expectation, it's just stifling. You know, coming out the door with that expectation, it would lead you to build the wrong products for the wrong people. So for us, I think certainly when we're thinking about learning more about Web3 and bringing our brands more into Web3, it's really looking about the evolution of our brands. You know, our brands have... If you think of Vogue, it started as a, you know, illustrated covers by hand. And now look where it is. It is seen through magazines and into the digital age and social and video, and it keeps evolving as a brand. So I think looking then at Web3 and how Vogue can continue to evolve, taking on the culture and all of our brands, taking the cultural cues that are coming from Web3 of democratization of creativity, democratization of wealth, of democratization of ownership, all these things that I think the people in the space are very passionate about whether or not it's actually happening yet is, you know, it's still in progress. So I think looking at it that way, and then if you do it right and you do it authentically for your community, then that will lead to revenue. And authenticity, I think, is can be quite radical because authenticity might be doing the very opposite of what the rest of the market is doing. You know, I think you look at something like the Tiffany launch with the pendant, it was, you know, a very high price point for a very particular type of community. But it was authentic to Tiffany and it has really stood up as one of, you know, a great example of a brand moving into the space. So sometimes to be authentic in the space is to do the very opposite of what everybody is doing. So I think as long as you find that authenticity for your brand and that takes a little bit of breathing time. So I don't think you should be coming into the space thinking this is going to be your big revenue driver. I think if you do that, certainly when it comes to digital collectibles and NFTs, I think you'll fail. It's really looking about the evolution of your brand into the next stage. That's a perfect way for us to put a bow on this episode. I couldn't agree more. And I also think you're bringing up a good point. Some of what has made all of this sort of like really breakout projects successful is the right combination of timing, individuals, community, and the underlying point of authenticity. Like it has to be authentic to the brand, to what they stand for, and the people who are leading the project. Oftentimes, that's a very vocal founder. I was actually just chatting to, you know, another group today, and they were debating like how much the founder needs to be involved as a heavy communicator, as we see in some of the breakout projects right now in April of 2023. And I said that like, that's what's hot right now, but that doesn't mean that's the only way to do it. If you look at a project like CryptoPunks, um, you know, the most successful project ever, like their founders didn't communicate at all. And that worked for them. So there's really no one way to approach this. And I love the approach that you're taking. But Kira, I think it takes a fair amount of brand bravery to be willing also to put yourself out there to something where someone's going to say, hey, you know, NFTs consume this much energy. And someone else is going to say, this is a Ponzi scheme. And someone else is going to say, oh, this is just gaming. 
So, you know, to do it authentically takes experimentation, it takes commitment, but also you're sticking your neck a little bit out there, which just like I commend you and the groups within Condé Nast for doing, because I do think you guys are really trying across so many different segments. So really respect for that. From hand-drawn illustrated covers to the future of the internet, the Condé Nast story. I love it. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so, so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Wow, what a banger of an episode from Kira. I think she just dropped so much knowledge. And I love that she was very vulnerable and real about their journey as Condé Nast because they've just done so much in this space. They've got so many different brands and they've taken a lot of different approaches into Web3 across their portfolio. Yeah, and like super kudos to her and also to your point about the fact of them bringing the education internal and then her being able to identify employees within Condé Nast who are interested just by like who shows up and who participates in those internal sessions. I'm sure you've spoken to 5,000 companies that so you probably see this day in, day out. But do you think that's like a big unlock for these companies is to find out who internally is passionate? Yes, because I think she's exactly right. Like passion drives people so much. And I've seen it a lot of the companies that, you know, we work with at Vayner. A lot of times the head of Web3 now was just somebody who was on the brand team, who was interested, who was a hand raiser, and then they got into it. And now they're doing this full time. It's such a real thing because executives are also looking for someone who cares about this and is going to do their homework. So I think it's a good tip for anyone who is listening and is currently on the brand side and is like, hey, how do I navigate this? Maybe take some initiative to really lean into those education sessions or even set them up for your org. Fantastic. All right, Avery, let's wrap it up. I wanted to say for anyone that this week, when you're hearing this, we are going to be recording a live episode of Gen C live from Consensus with a special guest. So next week's episode will be live from Consensus. So we look forward to all those who are going to be in attendance to sort of hang out with us. And if you do listen to the show and you are at Consensus, please come and say hi, because we would love to meet you in person. Avery, anything to wrap up? See you all at Consensus. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.